This is the audio version of my article, I Know You've Been Cheating. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite articles uh, that I've written. I think it really highlights um, a common problem in interviewing, which is a failure to understand and really grasp and believe uh, the terrible things that people do. Uh, and if we're unable to understand those uh, really, uh, I think it affects the way that we uh, challenge the, uh, the interviewee. Uh, so I'm going to get right to it. I know you've been cheating, published on April 26, 2021. When people don't do the direct positive confrontation correctly, I think it is largely because they don't trust the process. They think, I would never confess to a felony. One of the reasons they think this way is because they haven't committed any felonies against others. Maybe they snorted a line of cocaine in college, a crime because we say it is, but they haven't raped anyone, a crime because it's universally repugnant. Maybe they drove drunk with a 0.16 BAC, but they haven't committed an armed robbery. I believe that crimes against persons are weightier for the offender. As a person investigating these offenders, you have to really accept that the crimes happen and that their impact on the offender drives their response. When I talk to coworkers about this, I tell them, imagine you've been cheating on your spouse. I get a lot of responses to this. A few people squirm in their chairs. And as an optimist who is not investigating those people, I prefer to think that they are morally repulsed by the suggestion rather than discomfited by some other aspect of the instruction. Either way, I believe that the typical person can imagine cheating on a significant other, whether or not they can imagine robbing somebody at gunpoint or raping a child. So we will use cheating as the example. Imagine you've been cheating on your spouse. Really put yourself in that mental headspace. Try to feel what that feels like. You've been very careful about how you've done it. You've only met the other person at conferences. You've deleted your text messages. You named the other person a coworker in your phone so that your spouse doesn't get suspicious if a message comes through. Maybe you've accused your spouse of sneaking around in your phone so you've changed the passcode. Whatever you've done, you've been very careful. You know that there is no way whatsoever that you can't have been find out, found out. You probably feel awful, though. I'd guess there is a sense of foreboding that follows you throughout the day. Maybe you were thinking of having a talk with your spouse to let them know or break it off. One day you come home from work, at the right time for once. You ask your spouse what's for dinner. Your spouse says, you've been cheating on me. Wait, what, me? I've been cheating? Stop. I'm not mad. I've been expecting this day to come for a long time. I've been really cold towards you, and I know that I drove you into their arms. I got distracted with work. I let the kids' activities run our schedules. I know I didn't leave much time or space for you. I'm glad you waited for so long. I appreciate you keeping it quiet so that it didn't get back to our friends. Other people might not have been so kind, and I really thank you for that. But I would never do that. I know that you wouldn't have when we first got married. I was a better spouse back then. I was 20 pounds lighter and a real party animal. These days, I'm just trying to get by. It's because of all the good history that we have that you put up with me like this for so long. I've known about this for a while. I thought about when the best time to bring it up was. I've been avoiding it, but today is as good a day as any. I want you to know that the time that has passed since I've known has let me go from being mad at first to just feeling resigned and guilty for not having been better when I had the chance. The one thing I really wanted to know is whether you did this because you hated me or if you did it because I wasn't fulfilling your needs. It's because I wasn't fulfilling your needs, wasn't it? 
Ooh, boy, if you were out there slipping around on your spouse and came home to this, you'd be in trouble. Better to just fess up now. He or she knows what's up. If you're able to put yourself in the headspace of a cheater, look through that exchange and ask yourself how that makes you feel. You weren't expecting this. You did such a good job of covering it all up. You know you cheated. That's the most important part of all of this. You know you cheated. Here is somebody calmly telling you that they know about that. While your mind is spinning trying to figure out how they could know, your verbals and nonverbals are putting off signs that will not be missed. You rally your defenses to object, but they smack it down and keep going. If you can really feel this monologue, you can feel what a suspect accused of a heinous felony against another person feels like. Take this knowledge and really think through what that means for your interrogations. If you've decided to interrogate, you're reasonably certain that the suspect committed the crime. It's possible to know that in your head without really feeling it in your bones. No matter what happens with the rest of your interrogation, if you're following the read technique, for example, I want you to commit to the direct positive confrontation in a way that projects absolute certainty about the crime to the suspect. I'm going to use the cheating scenario to show you what a typically terrible direct positive confrontation looks like a few paragraphs down. You'll want to read that, I promise. Before we get there, let's sift through a few elements of the confrontation above. One thing about that direct positive confrontation, the speaker may or may not have really been there to talk about cheating. What if the speaker was just being silly and accused their partner of cheating just to get a rise out of them? When they heard that first response, wait, what, me? I've been cheating? They saw blood in the water. They remained calm and pressed forward. I point this out for a reason. In a standard interview and interrogation, the interrogation is a planned event that happens at a distinct time and begins with a direct positive confrontation. However, whether it's on street patrol or in your normal life or at some other time I can't think of right now, there may come a time when something you say by happenstance provokes an obviously deceptive response. If you're practiced, you might just be able to roll that into a monologue and a confession. Try to plan things, but don't miss the opportunity to let serendipity be your guide if that's the way it goes. Whether it was planned or happenstance, the speaker shuts down the first denials and motors on into a theme about blaming the victim. In this case, the speaker is the victim, so they blame themselves. There is some phony praise that will help prop our cheating culprit's hopes up a bit. Then the cheater objects, but I would never do that. Our speaker knows to never let an objection go without praising it, working it in, and moving on, so they do just that. When you work an objection in, there doesn't have to be one right way to do it. You should make praising and working objections in reflexive. You can practice on any old awful scenario. I've got herpes. Good. I've always wondered what it would be like to see it up close. I murdered my mother. That must have been really empowering for you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Or on everyday objections. I couldn't do that because I'm asexual. I think there are so many choices these days that I really admire you for finding that option for yourself. It's good to experiment. I guess it's good not to experiment too. Nobody is saying you did this because you were sexually aroused by it. I don't even own a gun. I hope that's true. I appreciate you for telling me that. That tells me that this isn't something that you've been planning. Remember, a denial is, well, saying you didn't do it. An objection is a reason why you couldn't have or wouldn't have done it. Without getting too far off course, remember that a denial should be responded to reflexively in the interrogation as well. I didn't do that. Yes, you did, but I need you to focus over here on helping us to understand the reason why. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. 
You shouldn't have to think about either the denial or the objection. Objections take a little more artistry because you'll have to spend some words to praise them and work their objection back in. But if you practice ahead of time, this won't be nearly as taxing as you might think. Finally, we got to the alternative question. While you're building your themes, you're always working towards the alternative question. You want to use this when the suspect has ceased to deny and object. This might be in a few minutes or a few hours. The alternative question above was, the one thing I really wanted to know is whether you did this because you hated me or if you did, or if you did it because I wasn't fulfilling your needs. It's because I wasn't fulfilling your needs, wasn't it? We all like using, are you the awful guy or the not so awful guy alternatives? There are endless variations to this. No matter how you pose the alternative question, always remember to end it with a leading question that the suspect can answer with just a simple yes. The leading question here is, it's because I wasn't fulfilling your needs, wasn't it? If you're ever lost at sea during your interrogation, ask yourself if you've gotten to the alternative question yet. If you haven't, work your way over there. No matter how good you are, people rarely confess spontaneously. Your stories might be great, but at some point you need to get them to the alternative question and by extension, the leading question to get them started. Okay, I hope you're still here because now we have the not very good suspect interrogation of the cheater. I have no doubt in my mind that you've been cheating. I haven't cheated. You're out late at night. You come back in different clothes. You never kiss me anymore. We haven't had sex in a year. You're crazy. Those don't mean anything. Why are you out late at night then and why? I'm out late because I have work. Don't you like the nice things I buy you? You never let me look at your phone because I've been planning a surprise for you. There, I said it. I can't believe you've ruined that. It's so typical of you. What's the surprise then? Forget it. You don't deserve it anyway. The surprise is off. I work my ass off to get you all the things you want. So typical of you to ruin it. You're lucky I haven't cheated on you. I've been faithful all this time and here you are. Ouch. That one didn't go as planned. Believe it or not, the example above is most similar to the interrogations that go off the rails every day. In this scenario, our speaker's opening salvo didn't go the way they wanted. Panicked, they attempted to prove their case by listing their proofs that they know. Instead of proving their case, it emboldens the suspect. The quick-thinking suspect understands now that their partner only has suspicions and nothing concrete. Suspicions can be argued with. At first, they were worried that their partner had witnessed it or found messages that they forgot to delete. It's not nearly that bad. Slowly, the suspect begins to take control of the conversation. We left them as the suspect was laying down a weighty guilt trip. My guess is this suspect is going to make it. I see this style of attempting to prove the case during the interrogation all the time. This technique is disastrous. Put your cheating self in the place of the second cheater. Are you going to admit to anything under those circumstances? I doubt it. They are giving you specifics. Specifics are easy to fight against. If you know you did it, and somebody says that they know you did it, your mind will be reeling trying to figure out how they know. Let me say that again. If you know you did it, and somebody tries to convince you that you did it, you will know on a gut level that you don't really believe themselves when they accuse you. You must remember that no matter how many times we tell suspects how certain we are of their guilt, the case doesn't sound all that good when you lay it out, even if it's a trial-ready fact pattern. Do not lay the case out for the suspect. Every single fact or argument you lay out is something to argue with. If you give them something to argue with, they will. Is it possible that you could get a confession out of this approach? Yes. Is it probable? No. The thing that made the first speaker so powerful was their absolute certainty. You should adopt this style when interrogating with the read technique. 
This first speaker does not present specifics. They tell a story about how they failed their partner. Their partner, desperate to be anything but a cheat, hears this forgiving certainty and wants it so bad that they feel forced to decide, am I a cheat or somebody that was let down by their partner and led astray? There's nothing to argue with because there aren't any fact pattern specifics. What is the person with the guilty conscience going to say? You've been perfect and I cheated anyway? No. Whatever crime you are investigating, if you decide to interrogate, go in with conviction. Look through these two examples and really understand what it's like to approach your suspect with conviction. A calm and steady gaze will combine with the inexorable certainty and you will get the confessions you seek from the guilty. What if I interrogate an innocent person? I'm glad you asked. We'll get into that in the next article. Until then, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and get in the box.